0: MSW Media.
1: This week, we were barraged by countless news events that had important legal consequences for the Trump administration. Bill Barr was confirmed as the Attorney General. Trump declared a national emergency. And the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee claimed that there was no direct evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. What will Barr's confirmation mean for the Mueller investigation? What evidence and charges can we expect from Mueller going forward? And does Trump really have legal authority to declare a national emergency? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And later in this podcast, I'll be joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who joins us regularly on this podcast. But first, I'm going to bring in Barb McQuaid. Barb was the United States Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, appointed by President Obama, and she is an MSNBC legal analyst uh, who all of us watch on television all the time. So let's bring in Barb McQuaid. Welcome back to the podcast, Barb. Glad to have you back on.
0: Oh, thanks, Renato. It's a pleasure to join you. I find you to be uh, very informative, and glad to help uh, contribute.
1: Well, thank you. I will tell you the um, listeners had a lot of questions, and there's been a lot of news topics. You know, as I've been trying to figure out what topics are we going to cover, it has been quite a uh, quite a week. We had, you know, everything from Jeff Bezos being. Uh, extorted or what at least appears to be some sort of extortion. Uh, We've had, um, you know, Andrew McCabe uh, came forward and, you know, conducted and, you know, sat for interviews and, you know, revealed a lot about uh, what, um, you know, Trump had done, uh, you know, vis-a-vis him. Then we had, obviously, the confirmation of the attorney general, uh, uh, Bill Barr. And then, you know, now uh, Bill Barr's first uh, legal challenge is going to pr- pr- presumably be up uh, to this national emergency that uh, Trump declared this morning.
0: Yeah, it's it's head spinning, the pace of the news. And frankly, it's kind of a typical week <laughs> in this administration.
1: Yeah, I, I, I often am in that situation. Uh, we're going to have a guest a little later uh, who's going to talk more about the the uh, national emergency. He was here previously discussing that. So I wanted to focus with you on some of these other topics, Um, particularly uh, to start with, I think, the confirmation of Mr. Barr as attorney general. Um, You know, that is the you know, this is the first time in a while that we've had a Senate confirmed attorney general. We've had Matthew Whitaker in the meantime. Uh, What do you what do you think we can expect from uh, Mr. Barr?
0: Well, if you take him at his word during his confirmation hearings, he did say that he thought that Robert Mueller should be permitted to complete his investigation. And, you know, uh, William Barr is someone who was the attorney general during the Bush 41 administration. I think he and Mueller are former colleagues. I imagine he has great respect for Robert Mueller and is going to let the investigation run its course. On the other hand, I can't help but feel a little bit of concern in light of the fact that this is President Trump's handpicked attorney general and that the last one, uh lost his job because he refused to protect President Trump by recusing himself and to be his Roy Cohn and those kinds of things and so if that's what he's looking for in an attorney general, it gives me some caution that this is the attorney general that he chose. I also have some concerns about William Barr's refusal to agree to abide by the ethics advice of career ethics officials only that he would consider whether uh, their advice in deciding whether he should recuse himself and then that, that he would make the decision himself. And so um, I am uh, cautiously optimistic that he will allow Robert Mueller to do his job.
1: <laughs> yeah, I will tell you, I was, I share your concerns. Uh, I, um, you know, I, d- I did think that he was going to let Mueller complete his job, although I did find um, Mr. Schlapp's uh, comment uh, yesterday a little disturbing. He's the uh, chair of the American conservative union that puts on that CPAC conference and he's the uh, husband of a important Trump aide, Mercedes Schlapp. So, you know, I thought it was bizarre that he talked about Mueller being gone. Perhaps this is just sort of what Trump's yeah. base is talking about and let's just hope that's all it is.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess uh, William Barr has the power as the attorney general now to fire Robert Mueller It is uh, his job just as Rod Rosenstein uh, appointed the special counsel when he was the acting attorney general after Jeff Sessions recused himself because he's now in the seat, um, not subject to recusal, at least at the moment. William Barr could, if he wanted to, fire Robert Mueller, but I think there would be an awful lot of blowback politically if he were to do that at this point. And so, based on what he said at uh, his confirmation hearings, I, I don't think I don't think he he has the Political capital to do that, even if he had the desire.
1: Yeah, I agree with you on that. I don't. Um, I don't expect uh, Barr actually to fire Mueller. Although I thought it was interesting that that uh, an important person was discussing that. Um, somebody who's influential in conservative circles. Um, I do, one thing I am, you know, very focused on though, and I wrote a little bit about this um, recently is whether or not. The Mueller report or reports will be seen by the public. Um, you know, I think there's good reason to believe that a lot of the information contained into those in those reports would not be available to the public because the regulations call for a confidential report to be submitted by Mueller to Barr. And uh, that would just essentially be a discussion of charging uh, decisions and and non and non decisions not to charge that Mueller made. And you could imagine a lot of evidence uh, being discussed uh, in that report that would be obtained via grand jury subpoena, which, as you know, uh, could not be revealed mm-hmm. to the public. So it seems to me that unless one of these um, uh, transparency bills, like the bipartisan bill that Senators Blumenthal and Grassley have sponsored, are passed, that we may not see the full Mueller report. Is that how, What is your view on that?
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. And as you pointed out on the show before, Renato, um, I think people sometimes get um, a false impression of what's required from Robert Mueller because they're remembering what Ken Starr did. And this, the Starr report, which was incredibly detailed and published and sold as a book, um, that was under the prior independent counsel statute, which has now lapsed. And we operate under a different rule, of special counsel regulations. And one of the problems that people had with that independent counsel statute was that they thought uh, the idea of this report – was maybe too much uh, detail, and so instead, uh, as you say, the requirement is merely that Robert Mueller reports to William Barr in most U.S. Attorney's offices, the way we did things. I'd be curious as to how you did things. My guess is something similar. We would write what's known as a prosecution memo or a declination memo, and it would either support our decision to prosecute or decline charges. It would list uh, the elements of the offense, the evidence that we found that was uh, particularly pertinent, um, and use it to support a recommendation to the decision-maker for what the charges ought to be and as you say much of it would be based on grand jury material that could even be classified material which could not be disclosed to the public and under the regs That report just goes to Attorney General Barr and then Attorney General Barr reports to Congress the fact that Robert Mueller is completed or uh, if he disagrees with any recommendation of, of Robert Mueller that gets reported and so it could be That we don't see much of a report at all. I know that William Barr was quite uh, measured and careful in his language when answering questions. He would say things as confirmation hearings like uh, I support full transparency consistent with the law and regulations and so the law and regulations don't require disclosure of a whole lot of material and in fact they prohibit the disclosure of some material.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, we also did in my uh, district. So you were in the Eastern District of Michigan. I worked in the Northern District of Illinois, both districts that are pretty sizable. Detroit was in yours and Chicago is in my district. And um, we did prosecution memos, declination memos. I will say that, you know, I worked on some very lengthy prosecution memos, mem- memos that were almost 100 pages long when I was dealing with very complicated, Um, uh, prosecutions that were either uh, pathbreaking where it was the the statute hadn't been charged before or when there was very complicated uh, legal issues, uh, you know, uh, involving very complex white collar cases. But even those uh, memos did not contain potentially the level of depth and detail that was contained in the Ken Starr reporter that the public Um, may expect here. So I just I wonder, I mean, Mueller may be influenced uh, here by the fact that he understands that there's great public interest and that the public has, you know, an interest in knowing a lot of these facts and perhaps there's a public interest in that. But, you know, if he was just doing this uh, consistent with the regulations, I could imagine a report that even if the Republic saw it, maybe didn't answer all of the questions that they might have in their minds.
0: Yeah, the part here that's different from the work that I did and I guess from the work that you did is that there's the possibility of impeachment. And so if you find Robert Mueller were to find information that could constitute high crimes and misdemeanors uh, such that Congress ought to be looking at it for impeachment, I would think Robert Mueller would have some responsibility to convey that information to Congress. And so it could be that uh, he writes a report with that in mind. Uh, as opposed to simply the kind of prosecution or declination memos that we wrote relating to charges in a criminal court. And so that's the part that I don't see clearly addressed in the regs. But I have to believe that when they were writing these regs, they were thinking about that possibility that a special counsel would be investigating a president, potentially for impeachment purposes. And so I would have to think that at the end of the day, there would be some material that would be turned over. I think it's to the House Judiciary Committee, which uh, begins impeachment proceedings.
1: Yeah, that that would make sense to me. I I would I I've always wondered what the mechanism would be for Mueller to transmit uh, evidence that and or conclusions regarding impeachable offenses. You know, one potential uh, way he could do that is through a grand jury report, which is uncommon, but has, you know, does occur from time to time. Uh, But it's you know, there you know, it's not clearly, as you point out, uh, Barb, it's not clearly contemplated by the regs. Um, you know, we're talking about this and, you know, one thing that kind of looms in the background is, you know, there was, um, you know, there's been for some time reporting by NBC News. I don't think it's been confirmed by any other um, uh, any other outlet. And there's also been, um, you know, a kind of an offhand comment by uh, now former acting attorney general Whitaker, um, you know, suggesting that the Mueller investigation was you know, coming to an end. I will confess that I don't know what to make of any of that. If it wasn't for that comment uh, and that reporting from NBC News, I would have no reason to believe that the Mueller investigation was winding down anytime soon. Um, but I And I'm not sure how to credit either of those things, particularly since uh, Whitaker appeared to me to be just speaking in an offhand way, and he um, seemed to try to walk back the uh, comment later.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I'm not quite sure what to make of it either, because it it, it seems surprising to me that they're that close to the end. You know, we had Robert Mueller extend the grand jury or, you know, request that a judge extend the grand jury, which I think is now going to go until June. Um, There are a lot of uh, loose ends that have not yet been resolved. There is this um, grand jury matter, the secret grand jury matter, where a a company owned by a foreign country has been subpoenaed to produce records. They would certainly want to see that through and not only obtain the records, but then do any further investigation that comes from those records. There was the recent search of Roger Stone's several properties where they took terabytes of of information. I would think they would want to look at all of that uh, to determine whether any additional charges may come. We haven't seen publicly anything relating to the investigation relating to uh, Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE and the meeting in the Seychelles Islands. It may be that Nothing more comes of that, um, and and that's already concluded. But it seems like there are so many loose ends that it's hard to imagine that it really is uh, closing, although there has been the departure of a few members of the special counsel's team back to their day jobs at the Justice Department. I think they've gone from 17 down to 12, and that does suggest maybe they've narrowed their focus a bit. And so I suppose it all depends on what you mean by winding down. If they're not uh, biting off new avenues of investigation, and they're just – finalizing that, which they've already identified, maybe, but I still see that taking more than a few weeks, you know, probably a matter of months.
1: Yeah, I, that that seems uh, right to me. I mean, I it, to me, there's too little information to really know, but I think you pointed to a lot of the um, factors that would lead me to believe that at least there's still some work to be done here. And, of course, um, even when they've charged uh, individuals, let's say like Roger Stone, you know, obviously – as you know, those cases can take not just months, sometimes years to reach a conclusion. And so uh, even if no ch- additional charges are brought against Stone, um, you know, that, there, there'll certainly be work to be done for some time, I suppose. It could be handled by um, the U.S. Attorney's Office, let's say in, in the District of Columbia, uh, which I know is a co-counsel on that case.
0: Yeah, and I think there's also reason for a little bit of skepticism. I know it is a technique that sometimes people put out there, this idea of um, it's going to be wrapping up soon, so that at, when it doesn't, uh, you can sort of uh, push that narrative that this investigation has been going on too long, and it's a witch hunt, and they still haven't found anything. And so um, it could be that there are you know supporters of the president who are just putting that uh, idea out there in the press so that, the public is talking about that. Isn't that supposed to be done soon? Are they still doing that? And so uh, uh, for that reason, I, I view that with a little bit of skepticism.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And it's certainly, I mean, there's no question in my mind that Whitaker made an error. I mean, uh, no prosecutor would ever say that to, to you know, cert- to publicly that they're about to wrap up or that they're ready to do it unless, you know, it's very, very imminent. Even then, uh, typically that would be something that would come as a surprise because, among other things, it can reduce your leverage uh, with, uh, you know, individuals that you're dealing with or, um, you know, people who you're fighting with over subpoenas and so on. So uh, you usually w- want to reserve that. And also, I- I've, you know, had many situations where when I was investigating complicated cases where I thought I was at, get close to the end and you think, oh, well, I need to wrap up one piece and it turns out to take more time than you might have otherwise thought.
0: Absolutely, and that's why prosecutors will almost never tell you when they'll be done. You know, um, sometimes you would ask people, when do you expect to wrap up that case? And it's really hard to give an answer because, as you say, you might think, I really only have one more person on my list that I want to interview or put in the grand jury, and then when you ask that person questions, they tell you about a meeting that five other people attended, and you decide, boy, I really need to talk to all five of those people. And so um, it's it's hard to know when you're almost done. You really don't know you're done until you're done.
1: That's right. I will say that, uh, you know, I have cases where I'm representing someone who's under investigation and I'm at, you know, and my client will ask me and I really have no idea when the when the government will be done. So a lot of the speculation by outsiders or even by people who you know, have been talking to attorneys or or others, I, I don't think that they necessarily uh, have good information on that. And, you know, and along those lines, another statement and set of statements that has drawn a tremendous amount of interest and a tremendous amount of debate was the interest by um, uh, the uh, chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, as well as the ranking Democratic member of the Senate's Intelligence Committee, uh, regarding um, evidence of what is called "quote unquote" collusion? So, um, you know, he, you know, he had said that there was um, no direct evidence of collusion uh, at this point that they had found, and then. Um, you know, there was there was some pushback from uh Senator Warner, the ranking Democrat, that well, you know, they he you know, he he essentially wasn't gonna talk at all about it. You know, he'd had a different view, but he wasn't gonna talk about it uh until the investigation was done. I mean, what do you make of all of that?
0: Yeah, I think you um raise a really good point that is an opportunity to educate people about direct evidence. Um I noticed that um he was careful to include that word, that we found no direct evidence of collusion. So I think there's two words that jump out to me in that statement. <clears throat> One is direct evidence. Um, and we know as lawyers, although I think the public sometimes believes that circumstantial evidence is somehow lesser evidence or not as valid as direct evidence. But the law says that circumstantial evidence is as good as direct evidence. And juries get instructed that they should of value circumstantial evidence just as strongly as direct evidence, because you don't always have an eyewitness to every incident. And so sometimes jurors get instructed that they can use their common sense to draw reasonable inferences from the evidence. And so by saying there's no direct evidence, he is not saying there's no indirect or circumstantial evidence. And so especially in a conspiracy where people don't say uh, directly in exchange for this payment, I want you to compromise your public office. You know, for example, in a bribery corruption case, There's much more of a wink and a nod that goes on. And so jurors infer from circumstantial evidence that something occurred. And so similarly, in a case like this involving all kinds of foreign intrigue, I don't know that people would have uh, explicitly said we are going to uh, attack the election to favor President Trump in exchange for his removal of sanctions or something as blatant as that. It might have been more subtle than that. But if uh, people in their common sense believe that that happened, then they can use that circumstantial evidence to reach that conclusion. That's the first thing that jumps out. The second is the use of the word collusion. And Richard Burr really ought to know better that collusion is not a crime. I know it's become this shorthand term for um, uh, some sort of deceitful agreement and coordination between Russia and Trump. And so maybe he's just using it in that sense. But in terms of finding a crime, I think what we're looking for is some sort of conspiracy to either violate some other statute or to defraud the United States by interfering with the fair elections. Um, And so if he is looking for collusion, I think that's the wrong question. I think the right question is some sort of conspiracy. And so, uh, so I remain skeptical whether that means Robert Mueller will reach a conclusion that no crimes were committed.
1: Yeah. I, I, um, I share a lot of your views, uh, Barb, on that. I, you know, certainly there's, I think we have obviously the same view on direct versus indirect evidence. Uh, It is, You know, certainly there can be direct evidence of a conspiracy and and sometimes that does you do find it. But it is not uncommon to have um, in conspiracy cases in particular, uh, have the uh, prosecution based on indirect evidence because, uh, you know, people rarely uh, either in, you know, in writing uh, particularly uh, put down that, oh, sure, I. Um, you know, you and I agree to rob a bank or hack a server or do whatever you know type of criminal activity. You're you're looking at it's just uh, pretty rare. Certainly in something like this, uh, I think all the participants would know that uh, you know this would be of great public interest uh, at some point, and they would be very concerned about being discovered. So I would be surprised that that would all be in writing. Um, so I do think the word direct is doing a lot there because there's a lot of evidence of you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, this term collusion, I don't really like very much because uh, it doesn't mean a lot to me. It certainly doesn't mean much in a legal uh, sense in this context. So, um, you know, I I definitely, um, you know, I definitely found the, the statement very suspect. But I will say this. It was interesting the kind of pushback that came in the Democratic side. Um, and, you know, it was not— it, it, it what it suggested to me i will say is the level of pushback that came from the democratic side of from folks on that committee did, it seemed it seemed consistent to with to me that of them not having some sort of smoking gun that burr is sitting on um that is that is uh the in, that would render his client his his comments highly deceptive in other words you know most of the the media coverage that i've seen over the last, you know, couple of years has been, you know, on these 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 cases have been come from cap, you know, leaks from Capitol Hill uh, have been, I think, a big source of information. Uh, I think that there would be a lot of political pressure on Warner and on the other Democrats if there was some really great stuff. You know, they would have, I think, more forcefully came out. Uh, I, you know, it, certainly Mueller has information that. Uh, burr and the and the and the senators on that committee don't have, but it it does suggest to me that um, the Senate committee doesn't have some sort of smoking gun that they're sitting on.
0: you know that's a good point. I had not thought about that, but i I think you're right about that. I mean if there was some uh, incredibly powerful piece of evidence um that that he had and then issued the statement of no direct evidence of collusion uh, that Anyone would consider to be direct evidence of collusion. I'm sure we would have heard about that by now. So I think you're right. It's probably additional evidence of context. I, you know, I know that Congress plays an important role in its oversight function in uh, investigations and pushing these things, especially in the public realm. Um, but I, I don't think these investigations are nearly as effective as the investigations a prosecutor like Robert Mueller can conduct. And that probably comes from my bias of having been a prosecutor. But uh, you know, I find it very artificial when uh, members of Congress have only five minutes or whatever it is to ask questions. They're not particularly good questioners. They tend not to follow up on each other's questions. They use their five minutes often for political grandstanding purposes as opposed to uh, giving to the truth. Um, and they don't have the ability to use wiretaps or get uh, the surveillance material that uh, prosecutors can get from the intelligence community. And so I just think that that these congressional investigations are a poor substitute for ro- what Robert Mueller is working
1: on. Yeah, I, I agree with you. your general conclusion. I do think that they are a poor substitute for what uh, Robert Mueller is doing. Certainly their investigative techniques are um, are fewer. Like you mentioned, wiretaps, I think, is one important technique that Congress, you know, is not going to be using. Um, but and also, you know, the investigators that are working with Robert Mueller, FBI agents and so on, are trained professionals who do that for a living. Um, What I would say is on the on the congressional side, you know, it's not quite as bad as those hearings that we see, because a lot of times these interviews are conducted in private uh, and staff conduct the interviews. And sometimes what I've seen when I've read the transcripts is that certain members who have experience with questioning because they're former lawyers or former prosecutors, they seem to take a bigger role uh, so it's not quite like the public uh, hearings that we're used to seeing, where, like, as you said, it's full of grandstanding. But still, um, while it has an important function in terms of, uh, you know, informing and educating our elected representatives and potentially the public, um, uh, I agree with you that it's very limited in terms of its value. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I will say, though, is I do, you know, I will, you know, one concern that I have... Um I do think that we overestimate given that you know there you know what that you know I'm I'm skeptical that you know people here may have written all of this down on a sheet of paper I do worry that the public has gotten the impression that proof of some very grand conspiracy amounting to what these what people talk about as collusion will ultimately be charged or alleged by Robert Mueller I it seems to me that when I you know I was traveling this week and so I watched more cable news than usual. I've seen a lot. I saw a lot of speculation by people who said they'd be surprised if there wasn't some grand conspiracy charge. I saw people saying that they expect that to happen. It's going to be coming soon. I will tell you, Barb. I don't see any reason to believe that. Um, and in my experience as a federal prosecutor. I tended to charge narrower crimes, not grand conspiracies, unless I had overwhelming evidence, because it's easier to prove the narrow crime and then I can bring in other information at sentencing. I'm curious what your view is on that.
0: Yeah, you know, I I obviously don't know what Robert Mueller will ultimately find, Um, but you're right in terms strategically, it was often better to hit singles than to try to hit a home run because you could achieve just as much um, and uh, by getting a conviction... One count was as good as many in many instances, um, and the judge would get the full picture at sentencing. I think when you're looking at a president and potential impeachment, though, it may be a little different. You may feel the need to turn over every stone and put into the public, uh, even in a charging document, um, all of the wrongdoing. So I don't know if the strategy is any different when that's at stake. Um, I think there's quite a, a strong possibility we'll see additional charges, but more in the line of singles than home runs, for example, I know it was only in the last week or so that Robert Mueller received the transcripts of the witnesses who've testified uh, before the House Intelligence Committee, and that includes Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, Steve Bannon, um, and that we know that uh, uh, those transcripts could be reviewed for false statements. Uh, we have Michael Cohen who pleaded guilty to that false statement about the negotiations with Trump Tower Moscow. The fact that they made him eat that charge and plead guilty to that, even though it didn't bring any additional prison time, suggests to me that they want to use that for something. And so it may be that they're going to scrutinize those transcripts with the thought that there may have been similar lies told by some of the others who testified before the committees. And in fact, if you look at the sentencing memo that Robert Mueller wrote uh, in the Michael Cohen case, he said that one of the areas where Michael Cohen had been particularly valuable was in talking about how he circulated his testimony with others before testifying. And so I, I would think that there might be a possibility that other people might be charged with lying to Congress about that. But I think you're right that those are more singles and home runs. But one place where there, if, if there's a home run to be hit uh, might appear is in the indictment, in the hacking indictment. I think it has been framed in such a way that it could be superseded to add additional people, because the way the conspiracy in the hacking indictment is currently framed It it is that they conspired to hack, steal, and stage the release of emails that would be damaging to Hillary Clinton. And so we know that Russians uh, hacked and stole, uh, but who else was involved in staging the release? Maybe WikiLeaks, it looks like, for their organization, one. Um, Roger Stone is communicating with them. He has not been charged with coordinating that, but it seems like they're very close to saying that even though they haven't quite said so in his indictment. And I imagine anyone else he was talking with, you know, his indictment carries that curious term that you and I talked about before about how uh, someone, an official was directed to ask Stone, to ask WikiLeaks uh, to release some things. And so um, we don't know who that is. And so I, I think by including the staging, the release part of it, it does leave open the door to include people who might have coordinated, you know, for example, it could be that someone suggested that emails ought to be released on the same day uh, as the release of the Access Hollywood tape because that would be very damaging to the president. And if these came out the same day, maybe they could obscure the story somewhat, um, you know, or to, to coordinate other messaging uh, at particularly opportune moments in the campaign. So if there was somebody helping to advise on that timing. I think that person or even the campaign itself could be charged as a co-conspirator.
1: Yeah, I think there's certainly that possibility. And it seems to me that the investigation against Roger Stone is continuing. I mean, they have these search warrants, and so they're clearly looking at more for Stone. But I would say that my default view would be, and I haven't seen any reason to believe that, they had evidence of other crimes at the time that they charged Stone and that they deliberately held back from charging him, that strikes me as very unlikely. I mean, typically you charge... I think it's unlikely,
0: too.
1: Yeah. Okay. Because I have seen... I have to say, Barb, I have seen people... Saying things like, "Oh, you know, the, the if you look at this indictment, it's a it's a conspiracy indictment without a conspiracy." I don't even know what that means. Okay, I mean a conspiracy <laughs> indictment. Either you got a conspiracy charge or you don't, uh, and you know that it's so clear that he's going to be charged with that. I I, I have trouble seeing how, uh, from my perspective, how any of that is uh, you can support that based upon what we know publicly.
0: No, I mean, I think they've probably charged what they know at the moment. I think they probably are trying to exert some pressure on Roger Stone to cooperate, although um, he's got an awful lot of baggage, uh, especially someone who lies and uh, threatens other people. If they don't lie, uh, I don't know that he'd be a particularly credible witness, but he could also provide just information that could be corroborated with independent information and not be called as a witness and still provide value that way. So I think either through cooperation or by reviewing all these materials that they took out of his house. Uh, Investigators and prosecutors are looking to see whether there are additional charges they can charge against Stone to tie him to a more overt conspiracy with WikiLeaks and members of the Trump campaign. Um, And, you know, he reportedly is a pack rat who kept all of his communications and other papers. You may see some emails between him and others that uh, have not been obtained um, from other sources. Maybe he talked in encrypted apps that, uh, they weren't able to get from WhatsApp and other services, but they can get off of his phones. And so you may find some things in there that does bring together that link in a conspiracy. but I agree with you that if they have the evidence, they think they would have I think they would have charged it unless the only reason you might hold back is if you are continuing to investigate other people and you don't want to tip them off that you have um, certain information about Stone and you're not quite ready to pull the trigger on others. I guess that would be the only reason that they might hold back.
1: Yeah, and I've heard other things. They didn't want to turn over a certain discovery. I mean, I've heard other sorts of reasons, but I do feel like sometimes there's this impetus. People are trying to search for reasons for why Mueller may have things that he doesn't, you know, hasn't revealed yet. And maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. I'm more humble about what I don't know. Um, I, I will say one concern that I have, Barb, is that, You know, Trump's messaging here is always no collusion, no collusion, no collusion. And the focus, he's made it so that this whole inquiry is about whether or not there's, quote, collusion or not. And that's not what Mueller was tasked to investigate. He was tasked to investigate links in a counterintelligence way. And we've discussed in this podcast many times the difference between counterintelligence and criminal investigations. Counterintelligence links between the campaign and Russia and then also various, you know, federal crimes, specific federal crimes. And. I'm worried that that Mueller is being set up by uh, the framing that has been developed for people to be disappointed, regardless of how successful he is, because on the other side of the aisle, the reaction hasn't been, hey, this isn't about collusion, it's about other things. The reaction has been like, yeah, collusion, he's going to prove collusion, he's got it. And I mean, you could imagine um, Mueller finding evidence of very substantial and serious crimes and A bunch of journalists still asking you and me because they call us for comment all the time. So, well, does this mean that he proved collusion or not? That's all the question I get all the time. I don't know about you.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think uh, Trump has worked very hard to sort of control the narrative, uh, discrediting Mueller and his 13 angry Democrats. uh, You know, all of those kinds of things, uh, I think, are designed to control the messaging and the way the public perceives it and also to soften people up over the course of time. You may remember the way he handled Jeff Sessions. He really bullied Jeff Sessions for a while, and people said it would be outrageous for him to fire Jeff Sessions. And then, as time passed, he kind of softened the public up, and uh, he was able to fire Jeff Sessions without, uh, you know, so much as a as a hiccup. And so, I think in the same way, he is conditioning the public, um, you know, about no collusion. And if you listen to it, you know, the message evolves from time to time. There was no collusion. There was no collusion by uh, by Trump himself. Collusion isn't even a crime, and so you know you hear all these things, and so uh almost regardless of what the outcome is, uh they'll be able to point to it in it, with the uh the elevated expectations and say you know in in the words some people like to use and call it a nothing burger um and so i I think there is some very savvy um, propaganda that goes on to sensitize the public so that when the message drops it will be a dud.
1: Yeah, I think that is right. There's no question that there's a very much a a very strong framing and PR campaign from Trump. So I'm always trying to fight back against uh, some of that when it's inaccurate, because I think that, unfortunately, um, folks on the other side have unwittingly played into that by um, presuming that there will be, quote, proof of collusion um, or, or whatever or conspiracy or something like that. Um, well, let's just, just switch gears for a moment. Another uh, piece of news that I think uh, was the news cycle for at least a few hours uh, were, were the ju- was the judge's finding that Paul Manafort uh, lied to, um, to uh, the FBI and to Robert Mueller. Uh, obviously, that puts him in a worse position uh, than he otherwise would have been. Can you explain that to us a little bit or wh- how, why that is?
0: Yeah. So um, Paul Manafort, uh, after he was convicted in the Eastern District of Virginia and as he was on the eve of trial in the District of Columbia, decided to plead guilty and enter into a cooperation agreement. And so by doing that, he gained a couple of benefits. One was a, a reduction by three points in his offense level for what's called acceptance of responsibility. And so that lowers his sentencing guidelines and also a promise by the government to file a motion to recommend a reduced sentence to the judge at the time of his sentencing. And uh, in in exchange, Paul Manafort is required to cooperate truthfully. There's some very onerous uh, things that he agrees to, um, to tell the truth, to not hold back, to be forthright and accurate. Um, And he began down that road. But at some point, uh, Robert Mueller and his team said that he lied and that they wanted out of that agreement. The agreement is pretty favorable to the government. It really says that the government, in its sole discretion, may decide whether the agreement has been breached. And the only way a court may reverse that is it finds that the government did not act in good faith. And so the judge uh, reviewed the material. Uh, uh, Mueller's team brought in, I think it was five areas, where they believed that he had lied to them. That was all done behind closed doors. And so we don't know. There were some heavily redacted transcripts about that. We don't know a whole lot about that. But we know that the judge found that he lied with regard to at least to to three of those five. And her finding was by a preponderance of the evidence. So she didn't have a full trial on it, but she had a hearing. And I think those were his communications with Konstantin Kalimnik about the payment of a debt of $125,000 and about his cooperation in an unrelated case. Um, And we don't know which one that is, which is kind of intriguing. Um, And so as a result of these lies, his deal was off. Uh, The government gets all the benefits, which means the guilty plea stands, but all those benefits that Paul Manafort was supposed to get, the three levels off for acceptance of responsibility and the motion for reduction in sentence are gone. Um, Looking at the guidelines, uh, I calculated his guidelines as originally 17 to 20 years. Um, If he were to cooperate and get roughly half of that, he could have been looking at eight to 10. And by losing his acceptance of responsibility, he's now, I think, looking at 24 to 30 years in prison. Which really begs the question, what was it that was so important for him to conceal that he was willing to risk that additional prison time? Um, and I, I think it must be a pretty big deal. Uh, at the hearing, um, Andrew Wiseman, who's one of Robert Mueller's prosecutors, said that the meeting and the communications with Konstantin Kalimnik, whom the, uh, Robert Mueller has alleged is uh, related to Russian intelligence, um, that that went to the very heart of the matter that the special counsel is investigating. And so, um, I don't know what it is he was trying to hide, but, um, he was very desperate to hide it.
1: Yeah, no question. Uh, I will say that, you know, to me, the, the key point here is, like you said, he's not going to be able to withdraw his guilty plea. So he got, he basically pled guilty in exchange for nothing, or close to nothing. He's now he's lost acceptance or responsibility, as you said, as well. So he's looking at a very long sentence. So why do this? I suppose, I mean, one argument, the most innocent explanation is that uh, Paul Manafort is such a uh, liar that he just can't help himself. He just lies all the time, uh, and it comes so naturally to the man uh, that he just can't help it. And Uh, I will say I've, on both sides of things, I've, you know, I've been, I've seen that, you know, I've seen the, I've been in the situation where I was prosecuting people who just, you know, would lie about all sorts of things that was so deeply ingrained in them. But it seems to me more likely that he is angling for a pardon and, you know, thought, you know, he entered into this cooperation deal thinking that, um, you know, there would be some chance that he could get away without uh, lying. But, um, or 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 even you know he could get away with lying about certain limited subjects, uh, but when that uh, became impossible, he just um, lied potentially to protect um, Trump or associates politically or legally or some other reason.
0: Yeah, um, you know his defense was he had a faulty memory and he just couldn't remember some of these details. But you know, in in my experience, uh, prosecutors aren't trying to play gotcha, um, and quibble about you know whether it happened on a Tuesday or a Thursday. Um, they, if, if all goes well, they really want you to cooperate because they want your information. So they're not looking to trip you up. But if you lie to them, um, they're going to know it oftentimes because they have other evidence that you're not aware of. They're talking to other witnesses. For example, in this case, they've been talking to Rick Gates, his deputy. Who was also present at the same meeting with Konstantin Kalimnik and likely told them his version of what happened there? They have records and documents and, and other kinds of things. And so, my guess is these five areas that they went to the judge with were five things where they believed they could prove objectively that uh, this was something that he had lied to them about, not just, you know, I forgot or something slipped my mind, that these were really uh, objective lies. And so, yeah, why would he do it? I guess maybe, maybe as you say, looking at it in the, be- in the best light, um, staying loyal to the end to president trump and hopes for a pardon.
1: Yeah, I um you know I got to say as, as you point out the you know prosecutors frankly they not only don't not trying to trip you up but they have every incentive to sort of keep Uh, things going with the cooperator. In other words, they want the cooperation to continue. So if somebody's just having trouble remembering or they get mixed up, prosecutor will kind of prompt you multiple times, uh, you you know, if you're the witness and do whatever uh, possible to help the witness be successful. Uh, And here, not only did Mueller decide, you know, forget it, this isn't worth uh, trying to do that with Mr. Manafort. But on top of that, um, you had the judge decide that he knowingly and willfully lied, right? I mean, he the judge decided it wasn't a mistake, so I, I think that's uh, yeah. you know problematic uh, for Manafort. Um, well, you know, to switch gears again, because there's so many different topics in news, you know, I have to say we we saw some really interesting discussion from uh, Andrew McCabe. Now he was the um, former deputy uh, director of the FBI, the number two person. When Comey was fired, he, I think for a period of time, was acting director, ha- you know, acting head of the FBI until Christopher Wray came in. Um, and there's been a lot of reporting already about some of the controversial things that he saw and said and did. Uh, but we got to hear him on CBS, uh, in his own words, uh, saying some of those things. And I think what drew the most um, uh, interest and and outrage and and concern on on from many different corners was him saying that, um, you know, first of all, he um there were some discussions that Rosenstein uh, Rod Rosenstein was involved in regarding the use of the Twenty Fifth Amendment uh, to remove Trump from office. That uh, Rod Rosenstein had had volunteered on multiple occasions to wire up, uh and uh, where you know record <laughs> conversations with. Uh, Donald Trump. And um, McCabe said that he, uh, when he created and launched the obstruction and the counterintelligence investigations, he tried to do so in a way to prevent them from being, um, you know, terminated or undermined by Trump. Uh, What was your take on those revelations from him?
0: Yeah, you know, it's hard to know exactly what happened. There is this um, disagreement between uh, Andrew McCabe and Rod Rosenstein about exactly what happened during this meeting. Uh, but, you know, if you look at Rod Rosenstein's denial, it's it's not really um, all square with what Andrew McCabe says. And so I think there's at least uh, some germ of truth to Andrew McCabe's statement. Um, what Rod Rosenstein said in denying that this conversation about the 25th Amendment occurred, he says, the statement is not accurate. The deputy attorney general never authorized any recording. Um, there is no basis to invoke the 25th amendment is not was, um, nor was the dag in a position to consider invoking the 25th amendment, because of course it has to come from cabinet members. So all of those things can be true. And McCabe's statement could be true as well. So I think Rod Rosenstein threads the needle pretty carefully there, um, in his denial. Um, you know, I don't know exactly what was said, but what it what it says to me is that um, there was great concern when Comey was fired that President Trump may be compromised and that they needed to begin an investigation. And I also think it's important to realize that although there are certain things we know in the public, it is likely that McCabe and others and Comey and Rosenstein are aware of classified materials surveillance information, matters from the intelligence community that they were basing their decision on. And so uh, I think from all of that, regardless of who said what or what their recollections are, they were all kind of freaked out when Comey got fired. and And even Rod Rosenstein followed up just a few days later by appointing a special counsel.
1: Yeah, I have to say that the way I look at all of this is, you know, here were some very serious people who were career law enforcement folks, people like Rod Rosenstein and Andrew McCabe and others, and they were seriously alarmed by what the president of the United States had done. You know, he had suggested to the FBI director that he wanted the investigation against Michael Flynn to be, you know, killed or undermined in some way. It looked like he wanted to try to end the overall Russia investigation, and he fired the FBI director when he refused to do those things. And... I think you essentially had these serious people dealing with an extraordinary situation, people who love their country and were dealing with a situation that they thought was highly alarming. And they had, I think a genuine fear that the public may never know about this or that these investigations may be uh, undermined or sidetracked. And so um, they did a whole bunch of things in response. And so to me, you know, the the acts that led to their responses are more important than what exactly they did in response. And to me, their, their discussions that ultimately went nowhere are less important than the facts that gave rise to them. Um, but I think that it is legitimate uh, for people to question, like, wow, why is it that, you know, in and under what circumstances should— Um, the Justice Department consider uh, recording the president? Or, you know, when is it appropriate to invoke the 25th Amendment and so on? I think those are fine conversations to have. But what it's been turned into uh, by Trump's allies is, well, you know, this was essentially an unconstitutional coup, which, of course, as I pointed out on Twitter, is bizarre because, of course, the the 25th Amendment is part of the Constitution. But nonetheless, um, there is something to those concerns. um, But we can't forget the I think the the very uh, bizarre and and troubling uh, facts that gave rise to them.
0: Yeah, you know, I know some of the people involved, and I think that um, my guess is, as you say, they were deeply concerned. The the FBI director has now been fired after coming back and telling us about these uh, loyalty pledges and asked uh, to, to let the investigation go and other things. Um, they may know other things that we don't know. They're concerned that anybody involved in this investigation is going to get fired. And McCabe says, you know, I was concerned that this would never see the light of day and no one would know about it. Um, You know, good people sitting around, professional people trying to think, what are our options here? What on earth can we do? And somebody raises the 25th Amendment. You know, in law school, we like to talk about hypotheticals because sometimes when you take something to the extreme, it helps you to see why things are. I mean, imagine the worst-case scenario. What if... um, President Trump admitted to them, I am a Russian spy, I am here, you're going to let this go because I'm in charge, this is going to happen. Or they were concerned about um, his mental health. Uh, they had seen him doing things so outrageous that they had very good reason to believe he was mentally ill. In those instances, to, um, to either investigate or invoke the 25th Amendment and try to uh, persuade cabinet members that it was time to utilize the 25th Amendment, I think they would have a duty to do those things. And so um, I, I think that rather than spin them as um, political enemies, these are professionals, career people working in the government, trying to do the right thing under highly unusual circumstances.
1: Yeah, I have to say, I mean, one of the concerns that I have when we go forward is, I feel that uh, some of these uh, shocking and outrageous things that led a lot of these serious people to have these discussions because these revelations occurred so long ago and because they've sort of been baked into our consciousness, there's a sense I think that people are no longer as outraged by them. In other words, we already, we've known for a long time that James Comey was fired. We know for a long time that he tried to fire Mueller. He tried to fire, um, you know, um, Jeff Sessions and, you know, ultimately did fire him and things like that. So I think all of these facts that to me are deeply concerning when you take them all together, um, you know, m- may seem less important to people, but they are, I think, very important. And they're facts that really we deserve um, to, um, you know, consider and, and take some action um, in response to. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, it's important to remember, as you point out, that um, we've seen so many norms broken now that we've become a little bit numb to them. But two years ago, in May of 2017, Uh, I'm sure it rattled people at the FBI to see their director fired because it was so unusual. And uh, the FBI prides itself on being independent from partisan politics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is I think this is something where, um, you know, at the FBI, I think at the time they were really thinking about what do we do if the president just wants to shut everything down and wants to um you know wants to undermine lawful investigations it's it's a subject that they 've never had a deal with uh in you know in their lifetimes i'm sure none of them uh and you know really the last the parallel there is nixon uh, those are serious to me those are serious matters and um I get the sense from people that the, you know there's there's baked in there you know there's an analysis that trump has obstructed justice and that 's just sort of what he does and we don't really um Uh, raise an eyebrow. You know, I mentioned to um, a United States senator uh, in the not too uh, recent past, you know, I don't I'm not sure that there could be there'd be, you know, over 50 votes to remove Trump for obstruction of justice because people just sort of view that or a lot of Republicans view that as, you know, yeah, he he tries to do that. And so be it, much less 67, which is what would be needed. And that uh, that's unfortunate
0: yeah I think there's a certain sense of you know that's just trump being trump uh that people shrug off um but we've we've come so far downhill since may of twenty seventeen I guess it's important to remember how these things might have been received then
1: yeah and so you know there's there's a i think really important question from one of our listeners that I want um to address and we can maybe work in the that the bezos thing that happened earlier this week into this so one of our one of our listeners asked i thought a very interesting question which is you know there are a lot of there's a lot of these subjects that have been coming up uh regarding Trump you know whether it's the inauguration or it's the um or uh you know questions about his business and how his business has been run where now there's in, you know federal investigations and she was wondering well wh- how could it be that the um Trump organization and and Trump and his family have You know, and they're you know have escaped uh, having these matters looked at and uh, you know justice done on by law enforcement for all these issues for a long period of time, and I guess my answer to the to that would be that um, there is I think a lot of ordinary citizens would be alarmed at the level of white collar um, investigation and prosecution that there is in the country. It's it's much lower than I think people realize. You know, when I think about the number of people who actually were policing our financial markets uh, on the criminal side of things, I mean, it's a very small group. I used to meet with them every quarter um, and we could fit in a small room. I mean, it wasn't a large uh, it's not like, a you know, it's not a football stadium of people. So I think that the reality is and a lot of these types of financial crimes that people now find very interesting that there there just isn't a tremendous amount of resources. And so law enforcement is really catching a small percentage of, of the potential financial crimes that are out there. So whether or not, I, I can't speak to whether or not there are financial crimes that have been committed here. There's still ongoing investigations of that. It would not surprise me if you told me that there was a, a business or an individual who was committing financial crime uh, and was getting away with it.
0: Yeah, and I I think you're right that um, there's a lot of undetected crime because law enforcement doesn't begin an investigation with a fishing expedition. You know, somebody might say, well, we've all known Donald Trump who engages in shady business practices for years, but, you know, a reputation for being a shady businessman is not enough to begin an investigation. You need some sort of predication that someone says, uh, you know, I was extorted or uh, I was the victim of a wire fraud or a mail fraud or something like that before an investigation would begin. And so if nobody comes forward you don't have information, it's just not on the radar screen of those who are looking. And I think that's why so often when you have these special counsel investigations or independent counsel investigations, you see them um, morph from the original mandate to something else. Because now that we are scrutinizing you, we have found that you are engaging in some kind of unrelated fraud that we didn't know about. But once we begin to look at your finances, we find these things that maybe many people are doing, but we just don't have the resources to investigate everybody.
1: Yeah. I think it's a great point, Barbara. In fact, I often, you know, if I'm ta- counseling clients, I'll say the most, the best way to, you know, avoid problems with the government is to not have them interested in you in the first place. And then once they are, uh, any problem that you may have, uh, the government is going to find when they're investigating because that's just what happens. And so, you know, I will say another sort of related reason why financial crimes and other types of crimes of that sort uh, are often uh, not prosecuted is that there can be a gap between – um You know, being able to sort of convince somebody on the street in a colloquial way, oh, yeah, it looks like that person did it, and being able to prove the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, a lot of businesses in particular seek the advice of lawyers and weave them into the process, and they will— um, I think um, operate in a, in a in an area where there's enough of a shade of gray that it can be challenging to prove um, the requisite mental state, like intent or knowledge, beyond a reasonable doubt, even if people will find it—you um, uh, know, if you talk to people in the public, they'd be like, oh, this is reprehensible, this is awful— um, and so, for example, you know, the Bezos uh, extortion that, that people were talking about, there's no question in my mind that if we're all having dinner together, we, you know, we could call it extortion or blackmail. But I think, you know, I had written a thread and I saw you had agreed in a comment kind of analyzing it at the time. And what I said was, you know, I don't think it's the sort of thing that would be prosecuted by a federal prosecutor. And in my experience representing clients who are on Bezos's end of it, Uh, I uh, was unsuccessful in getting federal prosecutors to prosecute this stuff because it's very complicated and the line between uh, settlement negotiations and extortion is is can be fuzzy. And there's all sorts of potential defenses, whether it's First Amendment and FISA counsel and other things that they could raise that make it challenging for prosecutors to bring these kind of cases.
0: Yeah, we used to have a saying around my office when we talk about something, you know, kind of despicable that someone had done. And we would ask, is it crime or is it slime? Because sometimes, even if someone had done something, as you say, at a dinner party, we would all agree, sounds like blackmail or extortion, doesn't meet the elements of the offense. You know, we're only uh, left with the tools that Congress has given us in terms of criminal statutes. And so you look for a statute that fits the fact scenario. In this case, there are a couple of different extortion statutes, I think, that come into play. But both of them require that there was a demand for either property or a thing of value. And, you know, ordinarily that's money. Unless you pay me, I will expose your secret to the world. You know, that's a classic case of extortion. Here the demand was, I want you to make a statement to the public that our investigation was not politically motivated or that our story was not politically motivated. That's a little different. Um, Is that technically under the law a thing of value? I mean, it kind of feels like it is. But I don't know that you're going to find case law on that. So I think there's some litigation risk in charging that. I don't know that I would charge that. I would want to do some research on how courts have interpreted that phrase, thing of value uh, or property in that context. But as you say, that's why it can be so hard to prove up, especially some of these white collar cases where um, you know businesses are constantly looking for loopholes. Sometimes that's very strategic business or tax planning to find loopholes in the law. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's illegal. It has to be you know some case of an intent to defraud, to cheat, uh, to, to be able to prove that somebody committed a crime. And oftentimes that turns on their intent, um, which can be hard to prove because you can't read another person's mind. You have to have uh, other facts that you can point to from which a jury can draw a reasonable inference about the, per- the person's intent. So they can be difficult to prove, as you say.
1: Yeah, exactly right. Um, it's a lot harder than most people think. I, when I was a federal prosecutor, I used to have people coming up to me all the time and asking me why the CEOs of various large banks hadn't been indicted or convicted. And its I, I didn't know I never were. I wasn't working on those cases. I was investigating other Other uh, executives in other areas, uh, but or in traders and so forth in the financial markets. But uh, one thing that I always talked about was the difficulty of proving some of that, particularly when they're advised by lawyers who um, give them good advice about what lines not to uh, go across. So, Barb, I've got I want to just wrap up quickly and in asking you, you know, what do you uh, think that people should be? Uh, keeping their their eye on in the weeks to come. What do you what do you expect uh, to be happening going forward?
0: Well, I think one area that I have to believe Robert Mueller and his team are looking at right now, having just received those transcripts from the House Intelligence Committee uh, of the testimony of people who have testified, is the potential for charges of false statements and lying to Congress. I think that could be really intriguing. So that's something that, uh, that I'm looking for. I also wonder whether Michael Cohen will ever testify before Congress. You know, He's had his testimony adjourned a couple of times now. He's getting close to his report date uh, to prison, though I suppose they could uh, get him out on a writ to go testify even after he reports. But I'd be intrigued to hear what he has to say as well. So I guess those are some things to keep your eye on in the coming weeks.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Uh, absolutely fantastic insight as always.
0: Thanks so much, Renato. Always a pleasure to be with you.
1: Now I'd like to bring back uh, Professor William Banks, uh, who's the founding director of the Institute for National Security and Counterterrorism uh, at uh, the, Secur- the Syracuse University College of Law. Uh, he's also a professor there. He was the former interim dean of the law school. Uh, and uh, Professor Banks uh, was on uh, last year, and we talked about the possibility of of Trump declaring a national emergency. Today he did so. Uh, thank you for coming back, Professor Banks. I really appreciate it.
2: It's good to be with you again.
1: I wish it wasn't under these circumstances, because uh, this is, I think, bizarre and, um, you know, not a good precedent uh, for our country. What are your, What's your takeaway?
2: I agree that it's not a good precedent. You know, the, as a... As a citizen, I think we all ought to be concerned that the president is torturing the way that our democracy is supposed to work by uh, sort of scapegoating Congress and the courts here and attempting to do this on his own. We we all learn as kids that the way our system works is that uh, the Congress decides what to do, and how much to appropriate for the purpose of getting it done, and then the executive carries this forward. And in this instance, the president's really running around that traditional process and deciding what needs to be done, finding the money to get it done, and then proceeding to do it.
1: Yeah, you know, a lot lot of listeners may not know, but the Constitution— uh, you know, contains in it very specific checks and balances regarding this. The uh, power to raise money is contained within uh, the House of Representatives. The tax power has to start there, and then, you know, no no money is supposed to be able to be spent without an appropriation from Congress. And I think, as we discussed last time, uh, the reason that Trump is able to um, get away with getting this far in doing this is because of a very broad law that that was passed uh, years ago uh, that gives him the power to declare a national uh, emergency uh, and really doesn't define that term in any way.
2: That's that's right. I mean, the, the law that Congress enacted, I believe it was 1976, was— uh, a sort of good government measure at the time it was a post-watergate uh, uh, effort by congress to uh, sort of clean up the history of presidential abuses of emergency power so in one law they repealed all the then existing emergencies but also then created this template that presidents from the mid-70s forward have been able to use to start over again to declare national emergencies and in doing so Uh, even though it was high-minded, I think for good purposes, they failed to provide criteria for the president to use, to uh, say what it is that constitutes the emergency, to articulate the justifications, and simply allowed him to do so, and then uh, allowed these emergencies to exist in perpetuity. So there are around 30 of them that are out there now that have been declared by presidents before Donald Trump uh, that are still on the books. And this one, unless Congress can pass a, 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 by a supermajority a, a resolution of uh, disapproval. Uh, this one can go on for as far as uh, President Trump wants it to.
1: Yeah. So wow. d- let's talk about that. Yeah.
0: Wow. wow. Can I say wow? I mean, when you when you heard this announcement, I mean, it, uh, one, did you anticipate this? And two, um, w- were there any expletives that might have uh, uh, <laughs> escaped your lips?
2: yeah I, there was an expletive or two in my vocabulary and uh, and it is a wow moment it's a wow moment I think because as we said at the outset this is really an assault on our democratic institutions as a you know as a national security lawyer and a constitutional lawyer, I have to concede that there's an argument for making this work that is for using the funds that he says he can use for military construction and going forward with the construction. Of the wall. I, I think it's a debatable path forward, and uh, I believe the better argument is that he doesn't have the authority, but it's certainly a defensible position. The irony here two ironies. Well, you know, one is uh, that the uh, shutdown that precipitated uh, the second round of negotiations and then this eventual decision never had to happen if he was going to use this emergency lever, because he could have done that at any point. Averted all the all the uh, horrors and, and uh, hardships that were suffered by so many people by virtue of the shutdown. Not the, uh, particularly, of course, those who were out of work without pay for that period of time. The other irony, of course, is that uh, the, the, this is not a military project. The funds that he wishes to use are called military construction. Projects And as, uh, as Renato knows, the, the law there says that they uh, must be for projects that require uh, the armed forces. There are military deployed to the border, but now those deployments are there in a support function. Uh, it's not a military project. It's Department of Homeland Security project uh, managed very well by Customs and Border Patrol, uh military is there to provide uh, you know logistics and infrastructure support to to tote people around to uh, to lay uh, wire and so on. They're not carrying weapons, they're not uh, arresting people or detaining individuals. so it's hard to say uh, that even on the theory that the emergency exists that this is a project for which those funds could be spent.
1: yeah, one thing we discussed last time was. You know that the statute doesn't define what an emergency was, and you know that that was tr- troublesome to me. But you know, you—I think you explained that there, there, there's some reason, good reason, for Congress not to have a definition of emergency for the president. Can you explain that to us?
2: Yes, I, I think the better argument is that they should have, and should now try to at least require the president to articulate the criteria uh, that he uh, arrived at to uh, declare a national emergency. But the, the general reason in Congress for not doing so is that you can't anticipate the unanticipated, the so-called black swan events. Uh, who knows what might come along that would require the president to have to do something in a hurry that's going to require the expenditure of public monies. Probably the most uh, vivid modern example is 9-11. President Bush declared a a national emergency the day after 9-11 to enable him to do all kinds of things that had to be done in a hurry for which there was no planned appropriation. There's never been a better justification for uh, the National Emergency Proclamation. It would have been hard to articulate those criteria in 1976.
1: Yeah, I I think that's you know the argument to be made there on that I'm I'm a little more skeptical than you but I see the point of it I mean I see I see the argument there it seems to me that any legal challenge, and uh, as you know, I mean, I certainly I've talked to people about potential legal challenges. It will have to focus, I think, more not on the emergency, whether this is a true emergency, and I don't, which I don't think it is, but on the, you know, as you point out, whether or not you know the armed forces uh, are essential to this project because the money that he plans to use. Uh, you know, the, part of the requirement for those statutes is that the armed forces are necessary for this project. And I think there's good reason to believe that they are not.
2: Right. I agree with that entirely. And, I, you know, it's a, we see now that this has actually happened, that he tags this uh, military construction uh, funds to the the smaller amount of money that Congress has actually appropriated for the border, and then to a couple of other uh, pots of money, if you will, for drug interdiction uh, proceeds, and uh, so between them, he thinks he's got more than he needs to to build this big, beautiful wall.
1: So, w- let's talk a little bit about what this uh, legal challenge would look like, because there had been a leak yesterday mm-hmm. that DOJ has told the president that um, that they expect that a court would issue a temporary order, a, you know, halting any work, any spending of this funds. Uh, while the court case is going on and that they expect to lose at least he And I think Trump said today he plans to lose at the trial level and the court of appeals and his hope is to win in the Supreme Court. Um, Can you just give us a sense of what you expect from legal challenges to this uh, action by Trump?
2: It's interesting that that even the president is now parroting this uh, this idea that the Supreme Court is going to bail him out. And the uh, you know the precedent for that is undoubtedly the uh, the travel ban case that that was in the courts for nearly two years before the Supreme Court reversed the the uh, lower court last summer and found that the that the ban in the third version of his of his executive order was lawful. So the 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 context for that decision, as you recall, w- could well be the context for this one. That is whether there was pretext. Uh, for the use of the emergency authority that is really not an emergency this is something that he wanted to do to please his base uh, to you know to keep the central Americans uh, out of the United States uh, because they're bad people or they're criminals or drug drug uh, uh, suspects but you know it's it's a it, as you know there's a long history of courts not uh, tackling the question of motive or what uh, lawyers sometimes call pretext behind the uh, the words of a, of a uh, an executive decision or a law. So it would be possible here for uh, for the, the the pretextual reasons for the declaration of national emergency not to be decisive. I think on the military construction law itself, that no court, so far as I know, has construed whether the what it means to have a project that quote requires use of the armed forces. If a court is willing to construe that law, it seems to me that it's very hard to demonstrate that this is a project that requires the use of the armed forces and that because it doesn't, those funds could not be used and the challenger may well prevail. So,
0: um, no, I was wondering because you were talking about the pretext, and I and I wonder, is there is there anything in the language that he used uh, today in making the announcement saying there isn't really an emergency, but I'm going to do this anyway?
1: In the statements that he made, does that have any bearing? <laughs> no, and let me no read.
2: I don't think he made—he didn't make that particular slip.
1: <laughs> yeah, what, what he said was—and I'm going to read his statement. Okay. I've got it right here. Yeah. I could do the wall over a longer period of time. I didn't need to do this, but I'd rather do it much faster. So that yeah. seems to me like it doesn't sound like much of an emergency. And what I guess what, what our, our question is, is whether or not— um, You know, what what effect do you think that would have on any potential legal challenge? What Renato said.
2: Yeah, actually, Washington Post fact checker called me about that very thing in the last uh, hour. And I said, I think legally it's not significant, again, because the Emergencies Act itself does not impose any markers for what constitutes a national emergency or what the president might say. I think it's possible that a court could look behind Uh, what the president is trying to do and ask whether there's a real national emergency here. But, you know, that would be a fairly uh, aggressive posture by uh, a lower court judge. I think it's more likely that that the two potential ways that this can get to court. One, of course, is that there's a private party who's aggrieved, a landowner, who who certainly has a, a strong claim to try to determine the lawfulness of him using military construction funds. The other is Congress, if they go forward with the resolution of disapproval that the National Emergencies Act allows within, I think it's 15 days, the House is almost surely going to do it, Senate might do it, uh, and then the president would veto that, and then they have to come back with two-thirds uh, to override his veto. That sequence of events is highly unlikely, but if it goes that far, then Congress itself might have standing to sue and could raise many of the same arguments.
1: Yeah, I you know it's interesting. So as a litigator uh, who litigates cases, I have a little bit of a different view on it, and I'm curious yeah. what your thoughts are. So from my perspective, those comments, I agree with you that they're not they don't directly go to any legal issue, but I think all of these atmospherics, as a practical matter, would influence judges in a litigation because a judge is going to look at this and. See between the statistics and between these comments that there's no real emergency here. Congress just made an appropriation of an amount, and Trump was I think very forthcoming about the fact that he he said right before those comments that he made a deal he got the amount of money that he wanted he just wanted to and he said he could get the money later just wanted to do it more. I think that would go into how a judge would evaluate this is a soft matter not not in Part of the opinion that the judge would write. But as a practical matter, I think that if George W. Bush was trying to claim some border thing because of 9 11 or something like that, I think the a judge would give him much more discretion, would be much less apt to carefully scrutinize whether the military was ready for or was necessary for something. Whereas I think here, Given all of these atmospherics, I think it would, as a practical matter, it might influence how a judge would approach the issue. What, what do you think about that?
2: Yeah, you know, I think in the in a in a trial court, that's far more likely to be in play. You know, I think the, the Supreme Court, the United, and in the Court of Appeals, it depends on where you are, of course. In the Ninth Circuit, that argument might well carry some weight, have some sway. I think in the Supreme Court. There are relatively few modern instances when the court's been willing to uh, engage what you characterize as a, as a softer uh, argument here, based on the on the atmospherics of the situation. And you know that's exactly what they refused to do in the travel ban case last year. Yeah. With, uh, with 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 uh, you know the newest justice on the court, I think it's even less likely to occur in the future.
1: That's an excellent, excellent point. Um, and, you know, the, just so people uh, who are listening to this understand the parallel you're drawing, you know, in the travel ban case, there's a lot of comments that Trump had made about discrimination, really, against Muslim Americans and his desire to to keep all Muslims out of the country before, well before the most recent version of the ban was, um was, um, you know, can even considered much less drafted. And I think lower courts in the Court of Appeals reacted very strongly to a lot of Trump's prior statements and found that they informed the decision as to the most recent ban. The Supreme Court, right. the majority of the Supreme Court, had no interest in that whatsoever.
2: No interest in it. That's right. It's a you know, it's a controversial tactic, who it's hard, you know, as you know, in the, in the appellate courts, you don't get to examine and cross-examine your witnesses. So how are you going to test and corroborate uh, statements that were made before?
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly right. It's interesting because, you know, we, we I try to educate listeners on how to be educated in terms of how they listen to the news and how they absorb the news. You know, this is the example and the difference between someone like me who's used to trying cases before juries and how I think of things. Versus how somebody yep. who would be arguing things in front of the Supreme Court might think of them differently. So let, let, let me ask you then, uh, Bill, do you think that uh, Trump does have reason to be optimistic in the Supreme Court?
2: I think he does. If it goes that far, you know, it, 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 it's if we, if we get a lower court judge who's willing to interpret the military construction law, and if that's the focal point of the lawsuit, uh, and the military and the lower court judge finds that the military construction law does not apply to this particular project, then I think the president's in trouble because it's it's unlikely that a court of appeals or the Supreme Court would second ju- uh, second guess the interpretation of a statute that had never for, before been construed and now is being construed by a federal court, a judge who has uh, presumably taken evidence and heard testimony about it.
0: A lot of people are wondering then how this will affect, you know, the way presidents going forward declare a national emergency, you know, I mean, you know, could this be a tit for tat later and a progressive president decides, well, now we're going to have a national emergency on guns or on on the health care system,
2: right? Yes. Yeah. I think that's, you know, that's a realistic fear and that's why even some of the president's most ardent supporters in the United States Senate have qualms about this because they're worried. Uh, about what the next president is going to do. Uh, it's a very good point. And, you know, of course, Congress is now going to be prompted to try to revise the underlying law of the National Emergencies Act to, uh, you know, set some markers to make it more difficult for future presidents to adopt this vehicle. But that's not going to be an easy path to follow either.
1: Well, let's just talk very briefly uh, before we wrap up about what Congress can do about it. You know, you, there is this resolution that Congress can pass that's, tr- that's actually triggered by the law. There has to, you know, it would have to go to a vote. Um, how, explain to us how that works and why, as a practical matter, uh, ch- they would need a super majority to, uh, to achieve uh, any uh, blockage of what Trump's doing.
2: Yeah, when the law was originally enacted in the, in the late 1970s, they included this mechanism that gives Congress so many days after the president's proclamation i believe it's 15 to disapprove of the emergency so that was a check on the exercise of, of discretion no congress has ever utilized that mechanism this time we know that at least the house of representatives is poised to pass such a resolution they're outraged at running around this bargain that was struck uh, on the on the law that the president also signed today uh, Now, if the if the Senate goes along, they they might have a majority in both chambers that would disapprove of the president's proclamation. But he undoubtedly uh, would exercise his uh, constitutional prerogative and veto uh, Congress's disapproval. So the disapproval resolutions work like any other law. They have to be presented to the president for his signature or veto. In this instance, the President, or yes, President Trump would exercise the first veto of his administration. And then the chances of Congress uh, overriding that veto with two thirds in both chambers is, I think, very uh, small indeed. When the law was written, it was possible for either House uh, to successfully challenge the President and for one House alone to have the authority to. Uh, stop one of these projects. But as uh, as you'll recall, Renato, the Supreme Court decided a case in the 80s called CHADA uh, that declared these one-house mechanisms uh, unconstitutional. So Congress had to amend the National Emergencies Act in the 80s after that decision of the Supreme Court to make it clear that only both houses, the House and Senate acting together, could have the effect of changing a presidential initiative.
1: Very, very interesting stuff. I think you're right that um, that uh, there's no way that two-thirds of the House and the Senate will vote to override the state of emergency or to put any stop to it. So it looks like we are going to have a long court challenge. It'll be interesting to see if that challenge is wrapped up before the midterm elections. It seems to me that this is something that could be resolved during election season, uh, potentially, in
2: 2020.
1: Yeah. I think it could.
2: Uh, Likely it could. Time will tell.
1: Indeed. Well, thank you so much for rejoining us, Professor Banks. I appreciate you fitting us into your schedule. Yes, thank you so much.
2: It's good to talk with both of you. Thanks a lot. Thanks Thanks again.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay... On topic.